into three three kind of main categories. And last week we looked at the place of uh, the Trinity in prayer and we saw that how an understanding of God as a Trinity uh, is a powerful grounds to, to participate in prayer. This week we are exploring the question of uh, the sovereignty of God and, and his sovereignty and the effectiveness of human agency in prayer. Basically, uh, seeking to answer the questions that, that, you, that sort of came through in various forms. Well, if God already knows all the things and commands all things and holds the whole uh, history in place, has that all sorted, what, what, what is the point of my prayers? What are my prayers actually doing? Why should I, or why should I pray at all, perhaps, um, you know, you might ask. So, with that in mind, we might pray and we'll get into it. Loving Father, we just... We thank you for uh, this privilege of prayer that you invite us into. A relationship with you that's um, it's not passive or static, it's, uh, it's vibrant, it's alive. Uh, and now as we look at your word, would your spirit illuminate our hearts with your truth for your glory and our joy? Would we, would we know you? Would we, we hear you? Uh, would we know the delight that, that, that we can have in approaching you? Uh, because we come in the name of your Son, whom you love and in whom you delight, and in whom we have access to your presence and to your heart. So we just pray this now uh, in his uh, beautiful name. Amen. Well, when it comes to prayer, uh, it's not unusual to find that we all know, uh, kind of universally, it's an essential and and normative part of the Christian life, Uh, that we even know and feel it's desirable. We even at times delight in prayer and yet at the same time in varying degrees through, you know, varying different circumstances and environments depending on what's going on in our lives, we find prayer to be dutiful. Uh, We said it's irksome. Uh, which is a really cool word, last week. There is somewhat of a paradox at play in the life of most Christians. Tom Thornburn says, When we reflect about the experience of praying, we find that it's the easiest thing in the world, yet we are inevitably bad at it. When it comes to prayer, last week we said that we, we don't need better formulas. We don't need uh, to be more dutiful, if you like. We need a better picture of God, a better understanding of God that reassures us that even when we perhaps don't delight to be in prayer, God delights in us coming. And we looked at how understanding God and his Trinitarian nature invites us and secures us and nurtures us in that uh, space of prayer. But as we push on in a theology of prayer and in this series, we find another paradox at play. The paradox of simplicity and complexity. And it came out in the, in the survey responses. On the one hand, prayer is simple. I talk to God and he hears me. It's just that simple. But then as we start thinking a little harder, prayer becomes one of the most mysterious activities. And we begin to ask more complex questions like, well, if God is sovereign and he's fixed human history from beginning to end, do, do I change God's minds with my prayers? 
And if God knows what I need before I ask, why, why do I need to ask? And if, if I'm praying for something and it's the opposite to what that dude's praying for, how does God sort, how does God sort that out? Well, our prayer life will either flourish or wither on how we understand the relationship of, of human history and God's, uh, the relationship of human history and, and that God's sovereignty and human agency has in uh, the activity of prayer. Well, God has plotted the whole course of human history to a planned goal, and we see that in, in, in verses like Revelation 22 I am the Alpha and Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46, I am God. There is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things, that, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. That does not mean that the goal or the journey there happens regardless of human agency. It does not happen indifferently to our actions. That's not a Christian worldview. That's not a biblical worldview. That's, that's more a view of fatalism. That's, that's, a, a, that's kind of Vikings. You've been watching too much Netflix, perhaps. Um, and that kind of view will impoverish you, your view of God and it will impoverish even your view of yourself. Now, God plans and purposes both the ends, as we just read in those verses, and the means to get there. What happens on the journey to historic events or to an outcome is desperately important. Not merely for the outcome, but, but for those related to the outcomes. Some things have happened only because they were prayed for. They would not have happened if they were not prayed for. Part of God's sovereignty is, is that, he, is that he, achieved, he achieves it through human agency. What happens in the future then does depend on what we do pray in the present. And as we do, we are changed as well. Listen to see how C.S. Lewis, how he kind of sums up this, this paradox. The event in question has already been decided, whatever it is you know, that we're praying for. In a sense, it was decided before all worlds, kind of C.S. Lewis language there. And we hear that kind of language too from the Apostle Paul as he writes in Romans there, for those who he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. And again in Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. There's that that language of before the world. But, Lewis says, one of the things taken into account in deciding it, and therefore one of the things that really causes it to happen, may be this very prayer that you are offering right now. My free act of prayer contributes to the cosmic shape. That contribution is made in eternity or before all worlds but my consciousness of contributing it reaches me at a particular point in the time series. Feel like you're in an episode of Back to the Future? Do you follow that? That's the paradox of prayer, really. A wonderful privilege of history-shaping power designed before time by God of sovereign governance. 
One of the most wonderful mysteries in the universe is that prayer changes things. God has so arranged uh, his world that we have the ability to make significant choices and some are good and some are bad, which affect the course of history, which affect the course of our lives. One of the means God has given us to do this is prayer, asking him to act because he is all-wise and all-powerful and all-knowing, knowing the end from the beginning, as we saw in Isaiah 46. He is able then to weave our requests into his eternally good purposes. If you could actually you know, kind of fully get your head around it, I think it would be a tad disappointing. It would reduce the mystery and the grandeur and the greatness of God into the smallness of human thinking. The paradox of prayer is the pattern that we find in Scripture. So it is the tension of prayer that we delight in because it keeps us reliant on Scripture. It keeps us reliant on his word for wisdom and it pushes us into his presence for comfort. In Psalm 115 in verse 3, the psalmist writes, Our God is in heaven and does all he pleases. It's just a statement of fact. And likewise, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46, remember the former things, those of long ago. Remember all the unbelievable movements of God in human history. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end of from the beginning, from ancient times. What is still to come, I say, and my purposes will stand, and I will do all that I please. The God of the Bible is presented as one who rules over all. He is all present. There's not a corner of creation where, where, where he is excluded from. He is all-knowing. Nothing takes him by surprise. He is all-wise and all-powerful. Nothing confounds him. Nothing constrains him. He sits in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. In Daniel 4.35 we read, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do things that displease him. He is never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something he hates or something that is not for our good. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, God, uh, in brackets there, works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is good news. Because the other clear picture we get from Scripture is that God is perfectly holy and good. And in his sovereignty, that holiness, that goodness is exercised for his glory and for our benefit. And the greatest picture of God's sovereignty being exercised, his, his goodness and his holiness for our benefit and his glory is seen in the sending of the Son to ransom sinners from, from their death through his, which Peter describes in Acts 2.23, says that that 
death of Jesus for us happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The whole Old Testament pulses undaunted uh, with this ancient promise from a broken, sinful, infected landscape of a garden to a renewed people free from the curse of sin. And, and we saw that picture, didn't we? As, uh, through Mission Month, as we looked into Revelation 5 and as we looked into Revelation 7, and we sung part of that this morning in our songs, that holy, 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 that phrase comes from creatures around the throne of heaven looking at Jesus and falling down and saying, holy, 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 all worship, all glory, all honour to Jesus for what he's done. He is the centrepiece of history, the, the plan of God. Like that's not some abstract lyric that somebody made up. That's out of Revelation. It's also out of Isaiah. So when we sing, open the, hearts, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, we're not thinking some, well, I wonder what will pop up. We should be, our hearts should be going back to places in Scripture that tell us about who God is, what He's like, what He's done through history in His sovereignty for us. We're not praying for abstract information, concrete revelation, and it warms and fuels our hearts. And again and again and again, a sovereign God and a prayerful people in concert, the dual agency of redemptive history, are praying and giving glory to God until Paul writes reflectively in Romans 5, 6, 11 that God acted, and he said it at the start there, Steve, at just the right time to sovereignly and freely rescue us and bring uh, this, this promised people from sin and death through the agency of his Son, an unstoppable plan, a sovereign God. This God that does whatever he pleases, pleases to rescue sinners and then invites them into his activity of what he's doing in the world. This God is the power behind our prayer life. It's, it's his greatness, his strength, his perfect plan, the surety of his actions, the picture we see in Revelation that fuels and gives power and confidence to our prayer, not merely our petitions, our own ideas and thoughts. And when we understand God, understand the way God employs his sovereignty, that should fuel trust. That should fuel confidence. That should empower our prayer life. Because we join with God in his work in prayer for his glory. We know that our prayers are irreducibly a part of his unfailing plan. Our prayers have to be fruitful. They do change things. And secondly, uh, as we saw last week, that when we pray, it's not merely for the advance of the work of God in the world, but it is profoundly and mysteriously the place where we express, uh, and where we encounter and experience our relationship with God as a good father. And sovereignty means God will always be good. So we can always enjoy prayer. Always be confident in prayer. 
there is a certain sense in which, uh, which God's sovereignty should, shouldn't actually cause confusion but should embolden our attitudes towards prayer, at least with respect to our prayers changing things in the world and indeed in our hearts. If anything, our understanding of God's sovereignty should provoke us to an intense prayer life of, of seeking him, of joining with him, of thanksgiving, the more we understand God's sovereignty, the more our prayers will be filled with confidence. The more we will be comfortable to, to go there in, in intimacy and thanksgiving. It is an undeniable fact that both Scripture and, and our experience, God responds to prayer. We see it in Scripture and we've seen it in our own lives. That's probably more anecdotal than factual. Uh, fact, though, is Moses prayed for food and water for the Israelites. Hannah prayed for a child in Samuel. And Elijah prayed for a drought, then rain. The events God had already determined to pass, you know, the Exodus and these things. But God also determined that Moses and Hannah and Elijah would pray for those events such that the events would have not taken place if they did not pray for them. We read in places like Jonah 3.10 and Exodus 32.15 Through prayer Nineveh and Moses engage God to be faithful to his established promises and to apply his grace to the changed conditions of their hearts. And God moves from one course of action to another but remains completely consistent with his established character and will. Without prayer, a conversation with God, talking to God about these things, these stories would look very different. Sam Storm puts it well. He says, we must never presume God will grant us apart from prayer that he has ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. What Sam is saying is that God has designed human history to be interactive with prayer. Again, God determines both the ends and the means, including the prayers we offer. However, he has uh, ordained his interventions to be in response to uh, faith-filled petitions. This is the great privilege of, human, of the human agency of prayer. What kind of sovereign God is this? Who, 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 if he felt so compelled, could make a great name for himself out of literally nothing? And, and he did. He spoke and the universe began. And yet, this God invites you and I into establishing that great name. This is no more clearly seen than in the book of Acts. Jesus has already said to his disciples that upon the proclamation of the gospel, the church will grow. That's the promise we find in Matthew 16, 18. And in Acts, we see that this promise unfolds only in concert with prayer. The church stalls, 
Well, church begins, Pentecost, and then it stalls. It comes under persecution. The church then prays. And what do we find the church praying? In Acts 4, they're praying scripture. They're praying about the character and the nature, the historic sovereignty of God. That that would fuel their hearts. That that would give them confidence. And as the church prays, they then continue to speak the gospel with boldness and the church increases in number and, and, and the gospel advances and we read that in Acts 4 and Acts 6 and Acts 9 and Acts 12 and on and on again this refrain goes throughout Acts. Put simply, God gives us the privilege of including us in his work. But more than that, more than including us in his work, In prayer, God invites us to enjoy him, to be known by him for our benefit. In Psalm 139, I don't know why I've written 138 there, but trust me, that's Psalm 139. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll be able to know that. The psalmist reveals that there is nothing about us that God doesn't know. You get that through the whole psalm. And then Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, that the Father knows uh, what you need before you ask. And yet, despite God's full and complete knowledge of us and our situation, he delights in us uh, telling him about our lives. He delights in hearing our needs. He delights in, 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 in joining in and hearing about our fears and our hopes. In James 4, we read that the reason we're all so jacked up and messed up and do dumb stuff with our actions is because we fail to come to God in prayer and ask Him and involve Him. Hmm. Someone pray for the... Um... Okay, just scratch that. Hmm. Well, there's a slide there that should have James 4 and James 5. Prayer is the discourse with the personal God himself. There, in this act of dynamic of, of praying, we bring our whole life under his gaze. Yes, he knows your mind. He knows my mind. But you and I still have the privilege of, arti- of articulating it to him, of, of sharing it with him. He says, come, speak to me. Make your requests known to me. That's the picture we get from Luke 18, uh, 1 to 8, with the, the persistent widow. God wants to be bothered by us so he can transform us, so he can change us, so he can be involved in our lives, so we can come to know him and to be known by him. Prayer is not a, oh, it's always good when you get to put a word in a sermon, a soliloquy. A one-sided monologue where we're just therapeutically speaking out our thoughts and our emotions and our concerns into the world as though no one listens. There's no one there. No, in prayer, two people are active, the prayer and God. Our thoughts are known by him and his thoughts are known by us in part, not fully. His ways are far more unknowable than ours. 
Prayer with God is like a good marriage or a lifelong friendship where the two are so familiar with each other that they know the thoughts of the other. They, they, they finish each other's sentences, if you like, before they get to finish them. God knows us like this because he is our creator and we should know God like this because we have lived in his word. If you don't know God like this, it's because you're not living in his word. You're in that weird place of, oh, I'll make up my own idea about God. But even when you know what someone is going to say, what they are thinking, you still enjoy hearing it, don't you? Like I still enjoy hearing what I know Sandy's going to say. Well, most of the time, sometimes I kind of like, I don't know if this is going to be good for me. That's where God and I are different. But she comes through the door and she looks like she's been arranging flowers in downtown Beirut. And we don't just look at each other and go, yeah. No, it's, hey, mate, how's your day been? God is like that with us, inviting us into a relationship. The privilege of prayer is not kind of first and foremost to have access to some kind of power to shape the universe and its trajectory as we kind of see in movies like Star Wars. No, prayer is a great privilege. Its great privilege is our relationship with God the Father. As John Calvin describes in his Institutes, Prayer is the activity in which our hearts may be fired with a a zealous burning and desire ever to seek, love and serve God while we become accustomed in every need to flee to him as a sacred, secure anchor. It's our great privilege to bring our whole finite existence into the glory of God's infinite presence. And as we do, we are changed. We are transformed for God's glory and our joy. Prayer changes us. Time and time again, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign and prayer is an effective agent in human history. And time and time again, we see that that prayer is what shapes and transforms the human heart. This insight alone should bring us to our knees in joyful adoration and excited expectancy. You you can't lose. Prayer invites you into meaningful relationships with God where your joy is his highest objective because nothing gives glory to God more than a sinner, a rebel, someone who wanted nothing to do with God coming to him in humble obedience and adoration, asking him as good father to act in human history for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. If your understanding of God's sovereignty leads you to pray less, then you need to rethink your understanding of what God's sovereignty is. There are events that will not happen souls that will not be saved and relationships that will not be restored unless we pray for them. Our prayers to a sovereign God make things happen. That's the biblical pattern. And while it's a paradox, while it's a tension to us, in faith we pray. And no one understood the sovereignty of God more than Jesus himself. 
and no one prayed more passionately, more fervently than Jesus for the will of God in the world and the presence of the Father in his heart. So let's pray. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you don't like it, perhaps. But again, five minutes just praying. Praying to our sovereign God. And if you're kind of lost for things, or what will I pray about? Why don't, why don't you go to, to Job, um, you know, about chapter 38 onward and read that. Or find yourself in Isaiah 39, 40 and read through that. Or get to Revelation 5 and 7 and just, and just read uh, these descriptions of our sovereign God and then just, just enjoy him. And then out of that, just see what kind of prayer you can come up with that might, for change in this world. That it might look like that end goal in Revelation 5 and 7 where every tribe and language and every tongue and every nation are gathered around the throne of God and worshipping our Saviour. It's going to happen. It's happening. Are we, are we praying for it?